0: Hello, 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 and welcome back to another episode of The Darius Show. I've got a new one for you guys today. This is going to be a bit different than all the other episodes I've dropped already. Today, I'm actually going to be doing a book review recap slash discussion. This is going to be on the Wheel of Time book for Shadow Rising. If you're not familiar with the Wheel of Time, it's a fantasy book series written by Robert Jordan It's spanning 14 different books. It's a very hard series to get through, but I just finished book four. I'm already on book five, and I have a lot of thoughts, and I want to talk about it. I'm also breaking down the series of Wheel of Time. So if you go back to my episodes, you'll see episodes one through three. I have a review, recap, and discussion on that already, and I'll have episodes four, five, and six coming just on the way here. But for now, we're breaking down book four of The Wheel of Time, Shadow Rising, Let's get into it, guys. My name's Darius Cook. Let's roll the intro. It's the Darius Show, y'all already know. Drop your booty to the floor. Come give me some more. It's the Darius Show. It's the Darius Show. So, like I said, guys, this is going to be my first time really breaking down a book or any type of book series so bear with me here i'm not quite sure what the best method is of breaking it down i'm gonna try and go you know plot by plot here not take too much time because these books are ridiculous they're really long and so i don't want to you know turn in an hour and a half review re- discussion over here so i'm gonna start just going character by character where we pick up in the book and then kind of move out throughout the individual plots beat by beat so yeah by the way, this is going to be completely spoiler-filled. If you want some spoiler-free thoughts, uh, this book was my favorite book in the series so far. This book series is really highly regarded. If you're a fan of fantasy and you're interested in getting into it, it's really worth it. This I, I like fantasy a lot personally, and this is by far my favorite series I've started to read through. So if you haven't already, you should definitely give it a shot. This book in particular was really fun and Perrin was my favorite character, but let's get into it. Spoilers. So where this book picks up up at all of our major characters, at least the ones that we've been following from Edmunds Field up to this point, are all gathered at the Stone of Tear, where at the end of the third book, uh, Rand had just recently picked up the Kalindor sword, uh, pronouncing that he is the Dragon Reborn to the world, essentially. This is kind of his... His his first time having debuted that information, and everyone's kind of just waiting around to see what his next move is. At this point, a transition has been made officially from the romantic interest being about Rand and Egwene. We've kind of fully moved past that at this point. Uh, both characters are now settling any lingering feelings that they might have had there. And now we're fully switched into the gear of Rand and Elaine, which is... A weird, it, it's an interesting pairing for me. At this point of the book series, especially by the end of this book, Rand is just such a whore. He falls in love with every girl that he talks to, I swear. But yeah, I'm not quite sure who I'm supposed to root for with him. If I'm to take the predictions of men correctly, then it seems like he's going to be in a sister-wife situation, which I'm not quite sure how I feel about that. I do like him and Elaine together, but I'm not sure if they're end game, you know? I, I'm just not sure how I feel about that yet. The romantic plots with Rand in general, I find more confusing than anything, to be perfectly honest, but that's where we pick up. They've been essentially dating for a few weeks. They are really into each other. They're in that, you know, new couple phase, and they haven't quite defined the relationship, but that's where they are at the beginning of this one. And really what the first few chapters of this book are doing are establishing the new journeys that each of the characters are going to be going on. Perrin ends up hearing word that, Edmund's Field is going to be attacked by by Trollocs and of course all of our characters would love to go back home and defend them against this Trolloc raid. Um, however this hits home most most notably with Perrin because it's it's let out that there's also White Cloaks going to Edmund's Field and they're looking for Perrin. If you don't remember Perrin has a rough history with White Cloaks and he actually uh, murdered one in self-defense but he did take the life of a white cloak, and that's why they're so hellbent on getting Perrin. And so now they're going back to his home to try to see, you seek him out and see what's going on there. So Perrin is actually the only one of our Edmonds Edmund, Field crew that head, heads back to go defend his home. And Perrin's plotline for this book ends up being my absolute favorite. Because it's separate from everybody else's, he gets to have his own full-blown adventure that is not aided by the dragon reborn rand you know he doesn't he doesn't need any of the other severe and crazy things going on for him to stand up as his own character and i think for the purposes of this review i'm gonna just talk about Perrin's entire plot line i think that's going to be easiest rather than trying to jump part by part and switch around to the different points of view as that goes along so Perrin's on his way back of course he does have his own crew he has uh He's aided by Fai'il, which Fai'il is his new romantic counterpart that was introduced in the latter book. They continue to have a budding relationship in this book series. You, you see the entire journey go from reluctance to affection to a point where end, where they're completely leaning on each other. And it would be not an exaggeration to say that they need each other. They're completely partners by the end of their journey. It was really fun to see those layers kind of break down between the two of them and see Perrin go from he, he's always been a softy, but he tends to have his guard up and the the softening of his character, even more so with Fail, who's just hellbent on making this man love her pretty much, or making this man realize that he loves her. Uh it's it's a nice little relationship and at this point they're certainly the cutest couple that we get there is a lot of romance that happens in the wheel of time it's one of the many aspects that the show excuse me that the book series does really well but at this point Perrin and Fael, that's 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 goals right there they're the best couple for sure he is also joined on this journey by loyal who is our resident ogre tree hugger bestie boy loyal this is a great book for loyal too there's a lot of books especially like the first two where it feels like Loyal is overlooked a lot. He's very present and he always has that charming, nice demeanor where he kind of everyone he just wants everyone to get along. And of course, you'll break his heart if you need to tear a tree down. He's just such a nice character, but especially when he's paired off against rat excuse me, Matt and Rand, a lot of the time, he just kind of gets steamrolled, his ideas, and honestly, very valid input ends up getting pushed to the sideline. But here he's paired off with Perrin, and Perrin's squad is just much more of a positive squad. They're a lot nicer than some of the different points of views that we follow along with. And it's nice to see Loyal get to thrive more so in an environment of people that are a little nicer to him. So anyways, this is a really good book for him. He carries the team in a lot of ways. The reason why Loyal is involved is because he has access to navigate the way gates, which only Ogres are really able to do in a safe way. And so he, he's very necessary to the overall team, and he's very helpful later on during the actual trollic battles, and he ends up becoming a, a focal piece to closing off the Waygate at the end and being able to provide some structure to their war. And the other big character that is alongside of them is Gaul. Gaul is a super fun character. I mean, he doesn't really bring too much to the story other than... Um, just being able to provide uh, someone else that you can trust to bounce off of for Perrin at this point. Um, But he's a cool character. The situation we find ourselves in when we get back to the Two Rivers is that the folks of Field are essentially caught between the Trollocs and the White Cloaks. The Trollocs have been growing in population ever since our main group left, and now it's hitting a critical mass where the Fielders are having to fight for their lives for the first time ever. Of course, we know that with their Maathran blood, that they are—they've—they've they've done this before. Uh, their heritage has gone through this before. This is a well-walked path for them, and they certainly do rise to the occasion. However, because they're not used to this at first, they have to rely on the help of the White Cloaks, which is a terrible situation because, as we are informed by in every interaction we have with them, the White Cloaks are the absolute worst, and they. Under the guise of doing something that is uh, spiritually and religiously uh, moral, they actually cause a lot more harm than good, and they bring terror to Edmunds Field. They had even captured uh, a number of citizens that we got to know in the first book, but most notably Matt's younger sisters. So Perrin, of course, is extremely motivated to break them free as soon as he learns of that fate. Of course, he is challenged by someone who has stepped up into a power position and kind of taken on a leadership role until Perrin returns. And his name is Master Luke. He's a he's a character that just gets introduced in this in this part of the book series, and he's really interesting. He's he's introduced under a shroud of a lot of mystery. He ends up being the Slayer figure that Perrin encounters in his wolf dreams, and I'm not quite sure if Perrin's wolf dreams are connected to the same dreams as the other girls but again we'll circle back to that a little bit later but this character has taken control but it's Perrin is fishy of him immediately just the way he smells uh gives him cause for suspicion for him and some of the calls he makes if you look at it with a critical eye it's pretty easy to see that he might not be a character that we can trust I'm thinking maybe he might get revealed to be one of the forsaken down the line But at this point, he's just a character under the guise of being a hunter of the Horn of Valere and is just uh, doing his thing to help out where he can. So he's an interesting character where his plot doesn't quite get resolved at the end of the book. And I'm excited to see where we pick up with him again down the line in the book series. So Perrin leads uh, a ragtag group of young Edmund Fielders that have never really fought for the first time and some with a little bit of experience. And he... Sets out on a plan to go capture, uh, recapture everyone who's been captured by the White Cloaks. This goes smoothly and everything goes to plan under Perrin's leadership. This is a re, I, in my opinion, this is Perrin's book. I mean, you're seeing him step up into the leadership role in such a great and strong, powerful way. He commands the pages when I'm reading his sections. I had the most fun following along his plot lines throughout the entire book series and. There's a section towards the right in the middle of the book where we get a lot of chapters with him. It feels like more time spent with one character than we usually get, other than Ran, perhaps. But he just it, that that part of the story really leapt off the pages, especially seeing the folks of the two rigor, to the the two rivers really stepping up into being heroes in their own right. He gets this reputation of pairing golden eyes, something that he tries to shake throughout this after he. Uh, gathers the his folks back from being prisoners he then sets everyone out on a mission to hunt for Trollocs is what he says and at this point he's really hell-bent on revenge one thing I forgot to mention is promptly he realizes that his entire family had been wiped out by Trollocs and he's essentially the last Ibarra the last of his name that he's aware of and that certainly is a big motivating factor into why he steps up in the way he does. And it's not for a desire to lead. It is for a desire to protect what's left of his people, so to speak. However, more than all of that, I think it's, it's blind rage. He's absolutely resolute to get revenge uh, because he wasn't there to protect his family in the first place. And that is really the heartbreaking nature of his story that makes him such a nice hero to root for in this story. He's also, uh, morally speaking, he pretty much tries to make the best calls at all time. And at this point, I think Perrin is the true hero of the story. It's going to be hard to pass him up, Rand. We'll see what you can do. Moving along here, uh, Perrin, uh, Perrin and the Two Rivers, under his leadership, hold off on multiple waves of attacks of all the Trollocs. And they do so wonderfully, keeping their damage count to a minimum And by all accounts, however, there's one last big battle left approaching, and this is where his story really comes to a head. And I'm really happy how much it involves Fahil. At this point, she's been fiercely committed to staying by his side no matter what, not letting him shoo her off in the face of danger. She wants to be there right with him to make sure he's protected as well. And in in the face of what looks like to be their most dangerous battle yet the one that they have the least odds of winning he actually comes up with a plan to send fayil off because she has the most notoriety it was actually revealed to us that she is of royal blood which is a huge reveal considering parents basically a werewolf at this point but um it's a plan that she can't refuse and she knows that in part of this plan is that it is a reasonable thing to do but the other half is that he wants to protect her, and he's desperate for her to not be present for this battle. She reluctantly agrees, but but makes Perrin basically uh, have to marry her. He say, She says, if you're going to do this, you and I need to be married right now. That's the commitment I need. And they have a great, quick little wedding. It's a ni- nice little bow to the top of their relationship that's been established throughout the last two books here. It is a little weird to think about how it's just been over a year since the first book happened and they left Edmondsfield for the first time in kind of all this development has happened parent has fully fallen in love with this woman and established such a strong partnership and that goes to speak for all of our characters in just a short period of time not even two years uh they have all miraculously grown in very big ways and that goes across the board and we're going to get into those characters soon i promise not to spend this whole review talking about parents perspective but in the now that Fai'il is off and, and Perrin can focus on the last battle, it seems like everything is doomed. The Chaliks just won't stop coming. The Edmundfielders are doing their very best and they're doing an excellent job, but they're sh- they're they're clearly outnumbered and they're, they're not going to be able to hold for much longer. And then in the distance, there it is, uh, a neighboring uh, other part of the Two Rivers comes to help at the leadership of Fael, She was able to rally up some troops to come help them and... That is what pushes the battle over the edge and allows them to come out victorious. And the, the, the glory of the, the elation that Perrin feels at the height of this battle being finally over and them finally experiencing victory is so strong. And you just really feel the love that he has for Fael and the love he has for his hometown and for everyone stepping up the way that they did. And a neat little button that they love to just tap on the end there it was very heartfelt, was an inclusion of a little boy who was delivering messages to him at the peak of the fight. And it's revealed that this is actually Perrin's cousin. There's actually one more person uh, left alive. And I'm sure that as the story progresses, Perrin and Fael will have children of their own to get his family name back on the map. But yeah, great great parent plot. That's pretty much where that ends off. And there's no characters... Uh, over a part of that plot that really affect the rest of the story. So I'm, I'm happy to leave that there. Let's move on to the next set of characters. Jumping back to where our characters find themselves in the beginning of the book, um, everyone is at the Stone of Tear and Elaine, as I said before, is like starting a relationship with Rand. However, it's at this point that she's sent away on uh, strong business from the Armalin seat herself. And that's alongside Nynaeve. So the two of them are essentially sent on a mission to go hunt down Black Aja, which which is a concept that was confirmed in this book to be real. And it's essentially sisters that serve the Aes Sedai that, uh, that basically found a way to break their oaths and they actually end up serving the Dark One. The only problem is you can't identify them because since they broke the oaths, they're able to lie and do other things that other Aes Sedai are vowed not to do. And so they're a very scary threat. And essentially, uh, they Nynaeve and and Elaine are sent on this mission to at the very least identify, get you know, do some spec ops type situation. Of course, this is a very da- dangerous mission, and they ended up they end up being accompanied by Tom Marilyn and I forget his name right now. Julian, yes, he is a essentially a thief catcher. He's a criminal, but also kind of like a mercenary. He's a pretty cool character, but the four of them essentially go on this long-spanning journey and have uh, they get a lot of progress in hunting down the Black sisters. Certainly for me, the most interesting plot line that was happening for these group, this group of characters was between Elaine and Tom Marilyn. It's been hinted at at the past that Tom Marilyn had a history at the in, in Elaine's life in the form of a relationship with her mother, the Queen, more gays. And in this in this book, it gets confirmed because Elaine basically starts to piece back together some distant memories of when she was a small child. But essentially, he was his mom. He was her mom's lover and a pseudo father figure for her as well. She, that dynamic is interesting and it gets a lot of attention. So I'm interested to see what they do to, to develop that later on. What else is happening are major conflicts arising, especially from Nynaeve. She actually ends up having a encounter with one of the Forsaken named Mogadine. She is infamous. And when Mogadine encounters these characters earlier on in the book, she is actually able to control them in an instant. And they turn them essentially into puppets that just vie to do her will. Uh, very scary threat, and they don't even realize that it's happening until after the after the fact they can distantly recall that it even happened. But in this interaction, Nynaeve goes straight up head to head with this person and uh, Nynaeve does still struggle with her problem where she can only channel when she's completely mad. She doesn't have a fundamental control of her channeling yet, even though she is, as far as we know, the strongest female channeler around. Um, but in this type of situation where it is just face-to-face with uh, the definitive enemy, she it's no holds bar, and she is actually able to, from what we can see, she uh, is able to take away her ability to channel. She completely shielded her. I'm not sure if she stilled her it's kind of hard to tell uh, because Mogadine does make a swift escape but we are under the impression that she at the very least is weakened and for all accounts she Nynaeve did defeat one of the Forsaken which is something we've only seen Rand do at this point so very impressive Nynaeve is probably going to be doing some very big things in the distant future through Nynaeve and Elaine's perspective but much more so Nynaeve's we also see her enter the dream world a lot and we're further getting a an explanation and an exploration of what this dream world is very interesting the rules are very uh kind of all over the place but I it's a very interesting aspect and it's something I I am very interested to see how they would pull it off in the live action series which I'm also watching and reviewing on the same channel um I don't know how they're going to be able to pull that off because so much of the attention around these books lately are going towards that dream world. And I do think it's really entertaining. I think that it's a hard thing to translate to all audiences, though. So, again, I do like the dream world. I'm really excited to see where they keep advancing that plot. And we actually get a lot more of that from Egwene's perspective, which we'll definitely jump into in just a minute here. So jumping back to the beginning of the book, where do we find the rest of our characters? So we're left with Rand, Matt. Moraine and Egwene and Lan of course he's there too and essentially what happens is they uh Rand Moraine and Matt all step through uh the I can't I I forget what the exact name is but it's the magical doorway where really Matt wasn't supposed to step in it. only uh an Aiel person is supposed to I can't remember why they allowed Moraine I think it's because just because she's a nice Sedai, but Matt kind of just like weasels his way into the situation as well And it's a place where you can go to get answers and you essentially, the experience of Rand in this place is that he lives, you know, a thousand lifetimes. And uh, that seems to be the general experience of what happens. It's a very trippy, overwhelming thing, but it's what, it's going through these gates that motivates our players to do what they do in this book. So it's there that Rand finds his answer and it's a bit of a mystery to us, but we know that he sets out to go with the IEO, which is technically his, his birth people. He is technically by blood an Aielman, at least, by the, at least by 50%. And uh, he wants to go back to Roydeon with them, basically where they all live at this point. Um, Matt accompanies him because he's told that if he wants to survive, he basically needs to. Very mysterious, but they basically use the fact that he's Taviran and the fact that Ran is Taviran, that they're drawn into each other, and that way they are sticking together for this period of time. Matt is a fun character throughout the book. He doesn't get very many plots that affect what's going on with the overall plot. You're just seeing his character develop and be there on the sideline to support Rand in some ways, but also just to kind of be around and you see him just grow with the story. Again, he doesn't affect any major plots, but it is fun to see him play with his new luck powers. It's interesting that he doesn't question these abilities. He just kind of rolls with it. And you're seeing his psyche start to slip a little bit as he is always speaking in the old tongue. He's starting to get his current existence mixed up with his memories of his past life where he was a great warrior. And those those aspects are shining through. Every time there's an action sequence, Matt is, is, is being narrated as doing an amazing job holding his own as a fighter. And I, I feel like he goes relatively unnoticed by everyone in that regard. I don't know why people are not making that a bigger deal, but... Matt, um, he's on the sidelines right now in the plot, but he's super cool and developing just as well as Perrin and Rand, which are just, those three characters are just so awesome to me. Egwene is traveling along this journey as well, and essentially her initial motivation is to stick with Rand and kind of keep an eye on Rand for Elaine. Elaine and Rand at this point are not quite promised to each other, but something of the sort, and and... Uh, because Egwene was able to officially move on, she's able to support Elaine within that romantic endeavor, and she's trying to keep an eye on him. But what she also gets along the way is because they're traveling with all the Aiel, she gets an opportunity to learn how to navigate the dream world from the Aiel Wise Ones, which are basically the best people at navigating the dream world ever. It's through their point of view that we start to see how dangerous it can be and just how, like, big of a threat it is to exist and navigate that world and we get that just hit over and over again between uh the interactions they have uh, as student and master let's say and it's through all these sequences that we're continuing to get that great character development for Egwene I think Egwene is such an amazing character and because she's so wide-eyed has such a good moral compass and she honestly goes through a lot she gets more development than most of the the characters around She's had a lot of ups and downs. She's gained a lot of new skills and tasks, and she's rapidly advancing. And she she seems like a character who's going to continue to dip her feet into different pools of of mastery around the world. And we even see that dialogue that she just wants to learn everything. And her tenacity she just makes for a great like main character. Uh, in my opinion, the four core main characters are Egwene, Matt, Rand, and Perrin. And they all just get such a, a lovely amount of development each. And all their plots are the best. And it's just easy to look at the world through their point of view. Moraine, of course, is sticking right by Rand's side. Because Moraine's only goal in life is to make sure that the dragon reborn is there to help them in the last battle. You, it's This book really shines a light on how intense that is her like true purpose. I knew that that was her main goal all along. But... It seems like this is the, her only reason for living and everything else is sidelined to that, which I think is just some good character development for her. The tension between her and Rand is really bubbling at this point. They cannot get on the same page. Rand just will not trust her and there's nothing she can say to make him let her in. Meanwhile, she's frustrated because she doesn't want him to make any stupid mistakes. He's still very ignorant. He's still very new to this world, as whereas she's been navigating it for quite some time now. Um, it is annoying to see them just hit that bell over and over again between their characters, but at the very end, it feels like we start to make some progress in that regard. But she, this honestly isn't a very uh, heavy book for Moraine. She isn't as prominent. She's very present, but she isn't affecting affecting the plot in, in very many major ways, at least as compared to some of the previous books. I do feel like her death is definitely coming soon. I feel like more and more we get strange dialogue from her implying that She's not going to be around forever. I won't be here to help you in the future and stuff like that. So I'm getting major death flags from her. So we'll see if that comes to fruition in the next couple books or so. And of course, you know, I had to save the best for last. And that, of course, is Rand. Before I really get into Rand, I'm going to talk about who essentially gets introduced and stuck to Rand. She's not introduced here, but she gets uh, a lot of spotlight in this book. And that's Avienda. She is one of the maiden spears of of the Aeel. And she actually has just given up this beard to become a wise one. And she's essentially been tasked with sticking to Ran like glue to kind of be a spy and to make sure they have an idea of what's going on from his point of view. And the wise ones feel like it's just because she's young and attractive that, you know, he might be down to spill any secrets to her. And honestly, throughout the book, we do see that Ran slowly, but surely his point of view shifts more and more in the direction of actually having feelings for Avienda. Rand is such a whore. He loves every girl, but uh, we'll see if that ends up becoming a major plot. They, They are fun to play off each other because she essentially hates his guts, is going to protect him at all costs, and wants to ensure that he stays true to Elaine, which is her sworn sister. So it's just an interesting dynamic. They play it up for laughs a lot of the time, and she's just very consistently there right at Rand's side, giving her input at every corner. Now, Rand himself in this book has been elevated to a higher status, and he's really just calling the shots around himself. At this point, he has notoriety, and he doesn't have any hesitation with presenting himself as the dragon first. Up until this book, he's always been Rand first, and then you kind of find out he's the dragon, but he'll try to keep that a secret. But now he's firmly walking with that identity, and with that comes status and esteem. And he's becoming more removed from the audience's point of view, uh, even just as a reader. So, I mean, all, all, all this time from book one to book four is the one I'm reviewing right now. We see you, you can see it from the point of view of his friends that slowly but surely they're they're not being on the same page with Rand and he's not sharing anything with them. And that's the same for the audience. Even though we spend a lot of the book from Rand's point of view, we're, we're not getting let in on what his plan is all the time. We know what his motivation is and he's planning to do something crazy, but we don't know what that specific plan is. So Rand more and more becomes this, this, uh, this character that becomes larger than life, even for us, for definitely all the characters in the book, but certainly us, the audience, as well. Uh, something Egwene repeats over and over again is that his his head is swelling like a melon. And that isn't not true. However, the time that you do spend from the point of view of Rand, you do see that he does still have his wits about him. He hasn't gone quite mad. It's just the pressure of everything that's happening is changing him as a person. And because he's behaving so differently and so boldly, it seems like he's going mad from other people's point of view. But from what I can see in his internal monologue, he's still very level-headed and is making reasonable decisions. Lanfear is a character who is a Forsaken, who got revealed to us at the beginning of this book, and essentially Lanfear had already been interacting with Rand for a while now. She had disguised herself as the Selene character from book one. Uh, that kind of navigated him uh, when, she, when he teleported using the teleportation rock. I can't remember what it's called right now. This is a big fantasy world. It's a lot to keep track of. But... Uh, Celine was very ethereal, very mysterious at the time, and now that we know that this has been Landfear, who is very evil and sadistic all along, um, it's she definitely makes for the most terrifying villain that we have in the fray right now. Of course, the Dark One is terrifying, uh, Miradalar, Trollocs, you know, the whole nine yards. But Landfear is an interesting one because she isn't on any one side except for Rand. She certainly doesn't see Rand as himself. She sees him as uh, Luz Telamon, his former self, but she is still committed to protecting him at all costs and ruling by his side. He, she doesn't necessarily want him to, to be controlled by the Dark One. She is certainly working for the Dark One as it is, but her grand plan is for the two of them to be uh, ruling the world together. So it's really interesting. She's very vindictive. She's very jealous. Every time he expresses interest in another girl, she gets all crazy about it and whatnot. But she's introduced at the beginning, and then she comes back in later on. We find out she's been tagging along with our crew again in disguise the whole time. And that reveal was definitely a shocker to me. Having her back in the fray is always just very scary. Before we get into that part, essentially, once we make it to Roydeon... Everyone's been waiting to find out what Rand's going to do here. What is going to happen? And essentially, he reveals himself to be the dragon. Uh, At the same time, Ruark claims that he is the dragon. And we immediately get the struggle between the two characters. This is kind of the major conflict we've known that Ruark was going to... we, We know that we couldn't trust him for a long time now. And now we finally figure out why he's been developing this scheme all along. Of course, Rand is able to prove without any shroud of a doubt that it is him because he can report about what happened in the gate and only the wise ones of the village can uh would know the secret and essentially he reveals to everyone there that their whole way of life is a lie because their ancestors were not uh they were not warriors of the spear which is what the aiel are right now they used to be, uh, follow the way of the leaf, which is basically a hippy dippy, no weapons, no violence type of religious lifestyle, and now this whole their whole society has been defined by the opposite of that, which is being raised by the spear. So naturally, this is terrifying news for everyone. They've basically their ide- their whole ideal about themselves have been has been completely twisted which provides our answer to the prophecy that's been repeated throughout the entire book and multiple books now, honestly, that Rand would would be would break the Iel. He would basically do them in. And there's a lot of ways to look at that, but it's perhaps already been done just by breaking their identity of themselves. So assuming that's the fulfillment of the prophecy and there's not anything disastrous to happen after, I'm really excited to see wh- what we do with the Aeolmen after this now. Because they're kind of a big question mark at this point. So yeah, he's revealed to be the dragon, truly. And there's a mixed response. But it's also at this point that Nateo, who is a new gleeman that's been following our group since about halfway through the book in the Aiel Waste. He's been sticking around. He's been an interesting character on the sidelines. But he reveals himself to be a Forsaken, too. At this point, if you're sus, you're Forsaken. Like, I'm calling it as I see it from now on throughout the book. That's why I don't trust Luke in, in parents plot. I don't trust Master Luke. He's going to be one too. But anyways, Nateo reveals himself to be Osmodeus, and him and Rand have a grand battle that was my favorite usage of the power that we've seen so far, or at least in a descriptive way, obviously. Uh, it was just super fun. I felt like I was really seeing it happen, and usually if I were to have a critique throughout the book series is that I usually get a little lost in their big ending battles of each book, I don't always feel like I, just reading it, I don't have a a good sense of the choreography of the fight and how it's actually happening. This one, of course, is a smaller fight because it's just a battle of power and wills as they both fight over a Sir Andreal, which is a one power enhancing tool, essentially. They catch it right in half and they're just basically matched up with power and in a stalemate for a while until Rand is eventually able to cut him off and reduce him to just someone who can barely channel. Apparently, this has been Rand's plan all along, was to kind of bait and switch one of the Forsaken, so that way he puts them in a position where, if he goes back to the Dark One, he will be killed, almost surely. And since that's his only other option, he can basically convince him to stay behind and teach Rand how to use his powers without going mad, because there are no male channelers in the world. So... Super creative. I actually really did not see this coming. I didn't know how they were going to provide an answer to how Rand would learn. I thought somehow they would bring low gain into the fold with that. But th- I just thought it was a great way to pull off that whole plot. And I- it's a great book into the entire journey that we've been on this whole time. And it's a major W that Rand pulls. Lanfear is present for all of this going down. And she really cements herself as just this in-between character. And we're quickly getting to a gray area here. Because at this point, Rand is somewhat being aided by Lanfear on the side. And Osmodius is now his right-hand man, teaching him how to channel. So are we dancing with fire here a little bit? Is he getting a little too close to the dark side? I'm not sure, but I'm excited to see uh, what Rand can really do now that he has a full-on teacher. The other big plot that's happening in the background is the Armalin seat is being dethroned. Basically, a group led by the Red Aja. Is, has taken over the white tower, has gained enough people in numbers to over, su- oversee the armalin seat and she's reduced from mother to just swanshot now. They actually end up stilling her and taking away her channeling ability, which has already been described to us as oh, a lot of people kill themselves once this happens to them. Once you've had access to the power and you're cut off from it, you lose your sense of life. Of course, except for in the rare example that you have something that's that drives your focus so strongly that you have something else to live for. And that's what Swanshan is banking on here. Basically, Min ends up helping break her out before any execution can happen. And we get a, uh, a renegade squad of Min, Swanshan, another woman from the tower who got stalled. I can't remember her name right now. And Loghain. I thought that was really surprising considering that low and the armalin seat were essentially mirror in, like on opposing sides of the of their own major threat just up until recently uh, she was the main one trying to you know make sure he doesn't do evil and I'm sure he was going for her neck as well now that they're all stilled and because min doesn't really have any channeling ability either she just gets some visions here and there they are they act as a completely non-powered group that are going to be navigating their own side adventure. I like seeing a new group established, one of the funnest things about this book is bouncing between the different combinations of characters that you get to know and love. It's just such a charming aspect of the series, and I love every character and every little group dynamic that's happening. That's just about going to bring our discussion to a close here. All in all, I really did enjoy this book, I'm enjoying this entire book series a lot, it's got me right by the throat, and I'm excited to keep sprinting through it as fast as I can and deliver a new review for you guys. That being said, I don't know if this one, this is going to be a hard one to beat. I thought that this was my favorite adventure I've gotten to go on with these characters so far, and I cannot wait for more. Parent golden eyes forever, weep for Monothran, and thank you so much for listening to this and listening to another Darius review. My name is Darius Cook, as always. Have a beautiful day. I love you.